good morning, everyone. I introduced myself a few minutes ago, but I'm John. I'm one of the pastors. It's great to be with you all uh, this morning, whether you're new to Restoration or you're a longtime member or visiting with us. We're thankful that you've chosen to join us for worship this morning. As you heard in that reading, we're in James again, uh, this series that we began last week with Pastor Dan, and he started by introducing us to the title of the series, which is Living in a Fractured World. And he explained that the book of James is full of wisdom for us in the midst of trials and suffering that we experience. The world is fractured. And because of that, we experience these different trials and sufferings. And so wisdom is required for how to live in that world. And the wisdom that James offers is applicable for us because the suffering and the trials that were experienced by the original hearers are just like ours. Now, the the actual form they take might be different, but they still lived in the same kind of world that we lived in, a fractured world. Their world was fractured between Jew and Gentile, between Israel and Rome. Then you add on top of it the internal fracturing that Jesus had brought into their lives. So for the original readers of this letter, their lives up to that point had been about being Jews. They had the Old Testament. They had all the stories about their history, about God's provision for them, about the Exodus, the promised land, the law, the temple. All of this rich history, all of this national identity, but their commitment to Jesus had become a threat to that identity because they had their previous Jewish religious leaders telling them that they'd been tricked, telling them that Jesus was not the promised Messiah, that by following him, they were rejecting their identity as Jews. They were rejecting their identity as God's people. And this had led to massive persecution from their own people. You can imagine what it would have been like to be a Jewish Christian at this time in history. Your whole life, you've been under the thumb of Rome, suffering persecution from them, but at least you had your own people, your own history, the support of your own nation and God's promises. But now you've become a Christian, and even that support has fractured. Friends and family members are telling you that at at best you've lost your mind, and at worst you've betrayed your country and your God. So now you don't have anyone left but this small community of other Christians. You're surrounded by persecution from Rome and from Israel. Later in the book, we see that there are, there's poverty and illness in their community. There are references to uh, the rich taking them to court. There's references to internal quarreling and name calling to partiality and relationships. All of that to say there are significant trials and sufferings going on in the life of the recipients of this letter. And so James is very intentional about offering godly wisdom to, in the face of these trials, to these readers. How should they understand suffering? How can they follow Jesus in the midst of the fractured world they live in? Well, those answers that James is going to give can help us today, too, because each of us arrived this morning with trials and sufferings. We could spend all morning sharing the particular things that each of us are going through, that each of us are bringing this morning. For some of us, it's external trials and suffering. It's our work. It's our relationships. It's our finances. 
It's the stage of life that we're in or the stage of life we wish we were in. For others of us, it's internal trials. There's guilt, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's physical health, there's mental health. There are all sorts of different struggles this morning. I know all these things are in this room because there are many of you that I meet with and we talk about these trials. We talk about the things that you're suffering through. And so what wisdom does James offer us in the midst of these trials and sufferings? Well, I think this morning in our passage, he's going to present two possible paths of wisdom. The first is what we're going to call the path of death. The second is what we're going to call the path of life. Before we look at those two, let's pray, and then we'll look together. Fathers, we come to your word. I do pray that we would see clearly these paths that you present to us, that we would understand in the midst of trial and suffering the opportunity we have to trust you, and that through the power of your spirit, you would lead us into more steadfastness and more faithfulness. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So last week, Dan spent the majority of his time talking about this radical approach that James takes to suffering and trial. And he he focused in on verse 2 where James says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That's a radical approach to thinking about trials and sufferings. But this week, as you heard in our reading, James is going to continue to press in on our experience of trials and sufferings. He's going to continue to offer answers that are very different than we would usually expect. See, when we ask for help in the midst of a trial, when we're suffering and we cry out for help, what we're looking for is either a way to avoid that trial, avoid that suffering, or to end it. We want to avoid suffering from happening. We want to stop it from continuing. But James actually has a very different approach to it. Because rather than seeing suffering as a momentary event to either be avoided or stopped, James actually sees trials and sufferings as an invitation, as an opportunity for us to walk a certain path. Our approach to the trials and the sufferings that we face is either going to lead us down a path of death or a path of life. Let's look first at what we call the path of death. Look back at verses 12 through 15. James begins by saying, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, James is giving us a hint of where he's going, and we're going to get there in a few minutes, this path of life. But James first wants us to be aware of the danger, the alternative, the path that leads to death. He continues, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And you notice the shift there from verse 12 when he said test to verse 13 when he says temptation or tempts. It's actually the same word in the Greek, test and tempt, but only context lets us know the best way to translate it. See, trials and suffering come to us in this life as tests. And we have to respond to those tests. James wants us to stand steadfast under them, to turn to God, to to trust in him. But often we choose another path. 
we see those tests as temptations. One commentator says it like this. We read a trial as a tragedy or as a senseless accident or as a failure on God's part to love and protect us. Or worse, some of us meet trials and we blame and attack God for them, accusing him of malice. We say that he tests us too severely. He pushes us towards sin so that we'll fail. When we face tests we don't endure, we give up. Because we believe failure is inevitable, we do fail. And then we seek someone to blame. God is tempting me, we say. Have you experienced this? Have you come into these trials and sufferings? How easily does your heart turn that into temptation? How easily do you fall into sin because you feel like failure is just inevitable? And then you blame God for tempting you in the first place. I do this all the time when I'm faced with these internal temptations. God, why are you doing this to me? But when we do that, James warns us, we're already beginning to step down the path of death. Verse 14, he continues and says, Each person is tempted when he's lured away and enticed by his own sinful desires. Because of our sinful hearts, we turn trials and opportunities to trust God into temptations. And then we blame God for subjecting us to them when we fail. And when the evil in our heart gains that foothold, it produces death. Look at, he continues in verse 15. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. James is warning us here that the way that we respond to trials and suffering is more than just reactionary. It's actually formative. When we face trials and suffering, we aren't just facing a momentary event. We're actually facing the opportunity to choose a path to walk. Our response to trials and suffering is an issue of the heart that's actually forming us into certain types of people. People of steadfastness that leads to life or people of selfish desire that leads to death. So how do you see your trials and your sufferings this morning? Do you come with them to them with joy like Dan talked about last week? Do you see them as opportunities to endure and to trust God? Or do you allow sinful desire to take root in your heart and do you turn from God or blame him for those temptations? If you find yourself struggling in that moment, that's actually a great place to repent. Sometimes we keep repentance on the surface, just the actions that we do. But Jesus talks so much about repentance in the heart. If this is a place that you struggle, taking trials and temptations and turning them back on God or turning away from God, this is a great place to repent, to confess the sinful desire of your own heart. Now, I want to take just a moment, and I also want uh, to mention that none of what we're talking about means that trials and suffering are not incredibly hard. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't weep when you're suffering. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't cry out to God and ask what's happening and ask for help or that you shouldn't hurt when suffering is happening. 
When Jesus' best friend Lazarus died, and he arrived, and his sisters came out and wanted to know where Jesus was. Jesus didn't say, you know, you should consider this all joy, actually. Right? Jesus knew that this was a moment, this was an event that was shaping these women into people that would trust him more. But in the moment, he didn't use that as an apologetic. He wept with them, and he mourned with them. So this lesson that James is teaching us about joy in the midst of trials isn't something to apply in the moment of grief and sorrow or as an apologetic for someone else's grief and sorrow. James is actually giving us a 30,000-foot view. He's giving us a framework around a life of trials and suffering, a way to think about those things and understand those things from a macro perspective. So remember that in the midst of these sufferings, that the weeping and the, the pain and the hurt are real things, and that's okay. But there's a tension there that should be difficult for us to practice and to feel. If you're feeling that tension, you're feeling the right thing that James wants to push on. But if we don't lean into that tension, then we make ourselves vulnerable for the very temptation that James is talking about. So we've got to break ourselves of this idea that somehow joy and suffering can't go together. Again, Dan talked about this a little bit last week. But if we have this idea that joy simply means happiness, and so we should do whatever it takes to be happy in life, that's not a biblical idea. The Bible holds this tension that somehow joy and suffering can go together. You see, the world says... Do whatever it takes to avoid suffering. Do whatever it takes to seek out comfort. Do whatever it takes to gain as much for yourself and to insulate yourself from suffering. But I think we all know that's impossible. Suffering is unavoidable in this life. And so if we don't understand how joy and suffering can go together and that suffering might actually have some purpose, then that leaves us in a predicament. David Benatar is what's called an anti-natalist philosopher. What this means is that he believes it's morally wrong for human beings to procreate, to have children. Here's what he says. While good people go to great lengths to spare their children from suffering, few of them seem to notice that the one and only guaranteed way to prevent all suffering of their children is to not bring those children into existence in the first place. In Benatar's view, reproducing, having children, is intrinsically cruel and irresponsible, not just because a horrible fate could befall anybody, but actually because life itself, he says, is permeated by badness. In other words, Benatar's worldview is that suffering has no purpose. But because life is so full of suffering, it would be better just to not exist or to certainly not have children who would have to live in this world of suffering. He goes on to say, life is bad, but so is death. Both life and death are awful, and so they constitute an existential vice. It'd be better not to enter into that predicament in the first place. So he says, suffering is unavoidable, it's inescapable, and there's no purpose behind it. Now, if we as Christians 
can't see any purpose behind suffering, then we're left with this worldview. But it's a worldview that James knows nothing about. It's a worldview that's incompatible with the Bible. And this is where James takes us next. He actually believes that trials and suffering have a purpose. And James says that as followers of Jesus, the life of Jesus, a life of suffering and trial himself, has been imprinted onto us. Notice verse 16, he begins, Do not be deceived, right? So don't believe this worldview. It's not true. There's another way. My beloved brothers. There's a brotherhood that's been created by our unity with Jesus. James is telling us, don't fall into the trap that we've just talked about. Don't walk on the path that leads to death. There's another path available to us. Trials and suffering don't have to lead to temptation, sin, and death. They don't have to lead to the hopelessness of the atheist philosopher. There is another path, and that's the path that Jesus walked. And it's the path that Jesus invites us into. The path of trials and suffering that produce faithfulness and endurance and that shape us into people like Jesus. That's the path of life. Look back with me in verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is speaking now directly to the lie that trials and suffering are God presenting us with temptation or that they have no purpose. He says God is not the giver of temptation. God is not the one who lures us into sin. In fact, God is the one who gives us every good and perfect gift. And so what James is saying in that verse is that trials and sufferings are not temptations from God. They're not pointless results of a disinterested universe. They're actually good and perfect gifts from God. That goes back to what we said a moment ago about the pattern of Jesus's life being imprinted on us. The path that Jesus invites us on is the path of life, but it's also a path of trials and sufferings. And I know that's a really hard truth to hear, but it's all over the Bible. First Peter it says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Romans says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Second Corinthians says, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And then Philippians says, I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in deaths, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And it's that last verse, that one from Philippians, where we really see the pattern that James is talking about. Suffering and trials are not pointless. Instead, they're invitations into the life of Jesus. Even the perfect Son of God, Jesus, suffered in this life. 
And as his followers, then, we're invited into his suffering, even to the point of death, because that's the path to new life and resurrection. I said it earlier, but please hear again. That does not mean that these things are not incredibly hard. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't weep. It doesn't mean that there's not evil that befalls us in this life. It doesn't mean that we're not living in a broken world where there's injustice and there are things that are wrong. Jesus, in fact, experienced the suffering and trials to go to the cross and to undo those things. But that work's not finished yet. And so until he comes back, until he finishes that work, our lives are lived on the same path as his. The path of trials and suffering that are shaping us into people like him. That's what James ends with in verse 18. God brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, the path of Jesus is a journey by which God shapes us into new creations. First fruits, the first results of the new creation work that Jesus began on the cross are you and I, and we become that way by walking with him in our trials and our sufferings. That's actually the only hope in the midst of trials and sufferings because you can't avoid them. I don't think you can resign yourself to the fact that they're just products of living in a mindless universe. So we have nowhere else to go but to say trials and sufferings are our participation in the life and death of Jesus. And so because of that, the hope is that we're promised the same end result that Jesus was, resurrection. As we come to the table, in just a moment. Remember that promise. We're going to see the sufferings and trials of Jesus right in front of our face. We're going to eat of his body. We're going to drink of his blood. We're going to touch and taste Jesus' sufferings and trials. And they're going to be mixed as we take communion with our own. We're going to participate in them with each other. And then we're going to look forward to the promise of resurrection. Let's pray and come to the table. Fathers, we come, we do ask for your spirit to be present, for it to make real to us your body and your blood, to make real to us your trials and sufferings so that our own are mixed with yours and that we're reminded of the promise of resurrection. Amen.